electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much, and welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, directionless December. Is that what we are in for? Stocks fail to find much footing. You all know that. We'll debate the road ahead for your money. Some still call for a year-end rally. We'll see if it can materialize. Joining me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Jim Labenthal, Jenny Harrington, Surat Sethi, everybody at the desk. Good to see all of you. Good to see you as well. Let's check the markets. Just past 12 noon in the east. And look, the Dow's down more than 700 points in the last couple of days. So we're losing 270 today. It's just shy of 1%. The S&P is down by a little more than 1%. That's a 45.5% loss, uh, 39.53 is where we are there, 356. The note on the 10-year, NASDAQ's negative. Uh, all right, so directionless. Jenny, do you have any conviction on where we're going in the next few weeks? It certainly feels like we are directionless. We, we got above the 200-day moving average on the S&P, made everybody feel good, say, okay, maybe we are now in an uptrend, and then we fell back down, and, and here's where we are. We have the CPI and the Fed looming next week. So... I think, no, I don't have huge conviction on where we're going, but I have huge hope. And I actually am totally comfortable and happy with directionless. If we end this month directionless, I will be thrilled because that means that we will have gone from down 26% a couple months ago to down 14.9% right now. So if we end there, we've done a lot of really good work and we will come out of this year having digested a tremendous amount of information and and. We've digested valuations. We've reconciled the huge divide between growth and value. We've digested the Fed raising rates so many times. We've digested the beginning of quantitative tightening. We've digested enormous geopolitical unrest, un unrest around the world, higher oil prices, lower oil prices. So if we can just stay directionless, I will consider it a huge win. Oh, no. And you know, when you digest that much stuff, at some point you get indigestion. You start to get <laughs> sick to your stomach. Or have we had so, indigestion? Don't you? Don't you, Surat? I mean, look, Wolf today is out. Uh, bear market's not over. 25 to 35% drawdown from current levels is what they predict. Why? Because the Fed's likely to hike higher, 5.5% plus, and for much longer into 2024 than the market currently expects. It's like, again, we go back to what we have now versus what's to come. Yeah, and I think what's to come more is the earnings estimates. I think that is where the uncertainty lies as to kind of what sectors are going to get hit the worst. When does the consumer, if and when the consumer turns over, and I think that uncertainty causing this directionalist movement, we got, you know, numbers that weren't that great Friday. So the market's basically saying, hey, we don't have any catalysts in the short term, so, you know, let, let things just fall to be. And if well, I thought seasonality was the thing we had. Are you well, saying that's not good enough to overcome the other stuff? Again, I, I, I think seasonality could play, but I think given where we are directionalists, you could see the path of leisure resistance is down. I'm not saying that's the way it's going to go. I'm still invested and I'm still looking for good ideas. But I think in the short term, you could see some traders putting some pressure on the market saying, hey, since we don't have any catalysts and then the data is really not that great, 
why don't we just go down the path of least resistance and then kind of wait for some positive news? Unless you want to try and get some while the getting's good before things start to fall apart, which many predict that they will once you turn the calendar and you get a little bit into 23. Yeah, 23 is going to be tough. Uh, I, I fully expect that. But I do think between now and the end of the year, I'm still in the camp that I think we can rally on seasonals, right, and defensive positioning and all this caution that is out there at the moment from every strategist on Wall Street, right? So there's so much negativity. However, we just did rally 12% from the lows. Mm -hmm. So I understand why we're kind of giving back a bit here. I think a lot hinges on next week's CPI number. I really do. I don't think the Fed meeting, by the way, I think that's kind of a ho-hum. I think we're all expecting 50. Um, oh, but well, the press conference matters more than the sure. move, I mean, at this point, sure, to your point. Sure, but I think know. the CPI mean, means more to the markets overall, right? And if it's a good number, meaning it's lower than expected, I think you can see an, a nice rally into the end of the year. Even if we don't, let's just say we're directionless, I actually think there are certain sectors that can continue to outperform into the end of the year, and you want to be overweight, energy, materials, industrials. If you listened to the CEO of Union Pacific this morning, he did say housing is slowing for sure. Consumer is starting to roll too. However, he also talked about steel demand being off the charts as well as cement. And that has a lot to do with the infrastructure package that was passed, right? Um, and that is not even barely put into place yet. And he also talked about fossil fuels. He said it's going to be decades before it replaces clean, which we all know. But that's another reason why you actually want to be overweight on the energy side of things. So I think between now and the end of the year, if we rally, great. If we don't, I think these sectors on a relative basis will do better. See, City, to just come back to you, discusses today the value outperformance versus growth, yep. and they question how long it can last. And I don't know that they're big believers because they say we maintain being overweight growth and neutral on value as the headwinds to value are likely to persist and grow into 23, right? If you suggest what you did earlier, quote, 23 is going to be tough, then the headwinds to some of those value areas like industrials are going to be tough as well. No? Well, they've been growth all year long, City has, right? So they got the whole value trade totally wrong. That's okay, but okay? from here forward. So going forward, well, but just let's recognize that. Um, <laughs> and then that's number one. And number two, growth stocks are not immune to lower uh, and market demand. Look at Salesforce. Look at Marvell. Look at the software companies. Look at all of the fangs. Mm -hmm. Not one fang didn't have some sort of problem when they reported. And so those are growth, and they're not so cheap. So to me, I still think that these value sectors that I'm talking about are cheap, mm -hmm. and that's really where I want to be, at least until the first like the first half of the year. And okay. then we can kind of see how, we, how much we slow down. So we, we have to be careful right, to take into consideration where we are now and what may come down the road, right, Jim? So Paramount CEO Bob Backish earlier today, uh, we just noticed this before the show, uh, seemed to lower guidance at the UBS conference. We mentioned to you yesterday, it's a week chock full of, of sell-side conferences. Paramount CEO, we do now see the fourth quarter coming in a bit below the third quarter. Uh, that's obviously the result uh, there on your screen, a six and three-quarter percent decline for the stock. It's not so much, Jim, uh, I don't want to have a paramount conversation, but it's emblematic, I think, of what may be coming down the road in terms of what looks great today in terms of earnings is not going to look great tomorrow. That you don't have to listen to me, you listen to Backish. So I, it's, it's an absolutely valid point, all right? And this is indication of a slowdown. 
Is it worse than a slowdown? Is it longer than a slowdown? That is the question to be determined. Worse than a slowdown means recession, okay? Longer than a slowdown means a recession. Now, this is not good news, but it does appear to be temporary. And I've got to take this in the macro because you wanted to talk about not just Paramount, right? You want to talk about the big picture. I've got to take this against what Steph just said about Union Pacific, about what Carl Quintanillo said today about uh, the United Airlines uh, CEO. What he said is that, and I'm not, I'm not being a smart aleck here. What he said was, if I didn't listen to CNBC, I wouldn't have the word recession in my vocabulary right now. He doesn't see it. Now, I've done this with you enough times. I know you're going to say, yeah, but it's just airlines, right? And it's a valid point. Housing has been in recession. I wasn't going to say that. Housing has been in recession. (laughs) Technology is going into a recession. Where I come out is with Ed Yardeni that it's going to be a rolling industry-by-industry recession, not all at once. That's why you're seeing airlines and, and casinos and cruise lines doing well in terms of their operations as housing stinks and as technology starts to stink. If that's the case, you can get through the next six months without a recession. But what it really comes down to is where Wolf Research is. Is the Fed going to be more draconian than we, including me, expect? And to answer that, you know, Steph really hit it on the nail on the head here. It's the PPI coming up on Friday and CPI next week. That will tell us if we're too optimistic on the Fed or, or, or we should be more pessimistic. Well, I mean, I would suggest that we're not even, you know, irrespective of those two reports, you're not going to know for a while how long, obviously, they're going to keep rates high for how long they're going to do it. Keeping and by rates high is okay. It's how high they go. It's well, how high they go. Okay, it may not be okay, right? If they keep rates higher for longer than you, you expect, it may not be okay. Goldman today, 2023 U.S. equity outlook. Uh, they title it, Jenny, the Flatland. Why? Zero EPS growth, zero change in the PE multiple, zero index price gain. Uh, they're looking for zero growth in earnings. Um, unchanged PE multiple of 17 times. What happens if there's a recession? EPS falls by 11%. The index troughs, that's the S&P, at 3150. That's a 21% decline. And so I look at this as a portfolio manager and I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's my landscape. Can I live with that? Can I make money within that? And then we think about things like how much is priced into the stocks? Scott, you know when when I was on Friday and I, of course, bungled the word synchronous? So this goes to the rolling recessions. Not everything's happening at once. And so when you read that Goldman comment, that is a big, broad picture that encapsulates the entire market. But as you as investors watching, as we as portfolio managers here, we can sort through that. And we can say, um, you know, the industrials that you were talking about, when you were saying the infrastructure bill, for, um, I'm thinking, okay, in our portfolio, we have United Rentals. United Rentals benefits from the infrastructure bill and has, I think it trades at 10 times earnings, has unbelievable earnings growth. I can take that Goldman backdrop and I can say I can remain fully invested and I can still make money. I just need to know what the playing field is. And flat doesn't it doesn't mean bad. It doesn't mean that everybody needs to be down. Going back to the value growth divide, you look at value stocks. They're trading right now at a multiple of 12 times earnings. That's re- in relative to their historic multiple of 14 times. Growth is right in line with the historic multiple. So there's opportunity and value. There's opportunity in the areas that Steph mentioned. There's opportunities throughout. Broadly, I think Goldman's probably right. But that doesn't mean that there's not a tremendous amount of, of investments to make next year. You can be all in. You know, fully invested like Jim, you can be fully invested like me. You can make money in this environment. You just need to pick 
pick more carefully and not ride the rising tide. Well, so the, the point that. here, too, is they look, Goldman does, for a 1% rise in, at year-end 23. It's just going to be much more difficult. So much. It's going, Surat, to be much more difficult to make money. I should let you know, too, and I forgot to mention this, uh, but I do want to let everybody know, Faber is going to interview Bob Backish tomorrow of Paramount. And that's, uh, I believe, at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning on Squawk on the Street. So you, you'll, you'll get the real account from him in real time exactly what he's seeing in the economy as it relates to his business. And then the market's going to decide what other companies uh, do, their stocks do, as a result of what he says. But anyway, this point about it being much more difficult next year, extraordinarily so if Costin's right at, at Goldman. Yeah, I mean, you have so many of these headwinds that are, that are there, whether it's the consumer, whether it's, you know, people in the housing market, what is going to be confidence, whether it's corporate or even consumer. And I think the right part is looking at sectors and looking at stocks where you want to be. So if next year, you know, these things are going to happen, you want to be some you want to be defensive. You want to be in healthcare, You want to be in staples. You want to have companies. People say those are too expensive, though, now, Surat. So, I mean, people but, talk but, about that for many but, months. But, but again, go to Jenny's point. I can get, I can buy Black, Glaxo at 10 times earnings. I can buy Bristol at 12 times earnings. Mm-hmm. I can buy J&J at 17. That's going to split off its consumer staples. Okay, that's staples. healthcare. What about staples? Okay, so in the staples side, I can buy Halion at 13 times earnings. That's a spinoff. Okay, and you can I buy can buy Unilever, right? So B&G Foods, but so, you can't buy Procter and Gamble and Kimberly, right? So, so you have, right, exactly. So you have to look and see kind of where do I want to be? Do I want to own Coke at 24 times earnings? I mean, it's defensive, and they've got earnings growth. So maybe because the stability of their earnings and the volatility of the earnings is much less than a 24 times growth stock. So you are going to have some places in there to invest, not just hide to actually no, but invest. See, this is my point, though. But you can no longer earlier in the year. In January, you could say, buy Staples. Yep. You could say, buy the Staples. Now, you cannot. It's not as easy to say, just buy the Staples. You have to be a super selective stock picker within the Staples because many, to Surratt's point, have gotten too expensive. And that's what makes it fun for us as portfolio managers, right? That it's a stock picker's market and that we can focus on fundamentals. And oh, by the way, we talked about this yesterday, uh, Scott. I really feel strongly that there are some offsets to the weak demand in earnings. There's a weak dollar Input costs are coming down. Supply chain. Oh, by the way, so the Union Pacific CEO also talked about supply chains getting much easier, much looser. All of those things will help because they were such headwinds this year. Yeah. So those go away. Not, maybe not go away, but they, go, they start to ease. And so we really have to pay attention to the demand side. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there are going to be parts of the market, parts of sectors that you don't want to touch. You don't want to touch housing just yet. At right. some point we will. Yeah. Right. So. So, okay, that's that's one thing. Um, there are parts of healthcare I don't really want to touch. But to your point, yes, you may you have great names. So do you. There are places that you can kind of hide, but it's going to be it's not going to be so easy of just buy the S and P 500 or buy a sector an overweighter or underweighter. Which it's fundamentals th- that matter. This conversation is kind of emblematic of what's happening in conversations every day around the markets and the outlook for next year, and a, and a, what some see as a principal risk that no one's talking about. Jamie Dimon was today. Listen. The other risk we have is quantitative tightening. We've never had it before, ever in the lifetime of mankind. So I look at that as something we should be quite concerned about. And you know, this, so the suppression of the 10-year bond rate has been going on for 20 years, and it can't really be suppressed anymore. And you know, QT has just started, so it's very possible. And if you have like 2% on inflation, you should have a 4% bond today. So I don't look at this like it's got to go get better than here. Obviously, it's a, it's a risk on trade. But that, that mindset may change if inflation sticks around a little bit longer. 
right, Jim? No one's talking about it. Gunlock's talking about it. Every time I talk to him, he's like, QT, just started. No one's talking about it. I think there's I think there's a reason why they're not talking about it, which is simply that rates have come down. Right. Whether you're looking at the 10 year Treasury or the 30 year mortgage, they have come down, albeit from very high levels. All right. But they've come down 70 to 80 basis points. I think that's why people aren't talking about it. But, Scott, to the question of whether it's going to matter or not. And frankly, this is, Scott, what you were saying the whole time. Right. Every time I say what the present conditions are, you rightfully say, yeah, but what's coming next? The, the question here is. Are the current conditions good enough that we can absorb quantitative tightening? To a certain extent, I really want quantitative tightening to happen because I don't like the Fed's thumb on the scale. I want their balance sheet being normalized. If I look at GDP right now, I know it's just right now. The Atlanta Fed has just come out and they updated did it today. Three point four percent this quarter. Yeah. We know up where from the, up from two eight. Up from two eight. Um, we know where the job market is now. Look, the Fed wants inflation to come down. It doesn't want to crush the economy. It doesn't want to crush jobs. This is why, again, to Steph's point, PPI and next week's CPI really does matter. It's not the end all and be all, but it does matter. If the Fed can get big breath, a soft landing, Scott, then, you know, we might be able to absorb this quantitative tightening. But until you see the 10 year above 4%, I just don't think but it's going to be I'm just on thinking that tongues. it's like one of those things that not enough people are recognizing that could, Jenny, keep rates higher than they think, you know, be- because of the quantitative tightening really just beginning. And now, irrespective of what they do, from a slowdown in their pace of the actual increases, the fact that you still have QT. I'm thinking of it in the relationship that it's going to have to the growth value thing mm-hmm. that we discussed. You know, if it keeps rates more elevated than people expect, obviously things like the tech trade are going to have a continued issue. There's a reason why the Nasdaq hasn't really recovered to the degree anywhere close to the to the way that the Dow has, for example. Right. And even when we talk about, and this goes back to Sarah and Steph's point, you really need to bifurcate what you're talking about. So even when we talk about the tech trade, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the Cisco's and the IBM's? Or are we talking about the sales forces and the snowflakes? Because the sales forces and the snowflakes have long dated growth. So they are dramatically more impacted by a higher interest rate than their immediate cash flowing brother. But, you know, see, brothers. but everybody's getting put in the same basket. You didn't even mention the mega caps. OK. What about them? Well, even those one, each is independent, right? Facebook has very different dynamics than Netflix. Um, so I think this goes into the work is hard this year. Um, one of the things on quantitative tightening, because I know you and I have been toying around with this too, that I've been thinking a lot about it is, it's not like, and I think the reason that we haven't been focusing on it is because it's not like a bomb that drops. You know, when they say, hey, guess what, everyone raising interest rates by 1%, surprise, that's a bomb that drops. Whereas quantitative tightening is that $95 billion a month just slowly being drawn out, drawn out, drawn out. And so I don't think it has an immediate, huge, disruptive impact on the market. What I think it does is it takes, it takes dollars out of the economy, which caps the growth on risky assets. It also could keep rates higher for longer. Just a quick aside, we did a fun exercise in my office where we, um, just this is my version of fun, but we ran single stage dividend growth models um, for each of, the, each of the companies in the portfolio and then tweaked the risk free rate of return. We're like, okay, let's see what it, these all look like at three and a half percent. Let's see at 4%, let's see at 5% and, and looked at what the expected values were based on those. And it's an interesting thing because what you learn is you can live with them. You just need to know what the rules are. And that's kind of where we're getting to right now is we're learning what the rules are. Higher for longer, we can live with. We just need to know what it's going to be. I guess. I mean, you know, Savita Subramanian over at Bank of America has an interesting note today on on the year ahead, putting all of these risks into consideration. 
her two risks, okay, being naked equities, because the S&P could go as low as 3,000, she suggests, then, as you see on the screen here, get a snapback as uncertainty, rates, volatility, and uh, earnings revisions uh, improve. The other one, principal risk to her, is being invested in the wrong stocks. Avoid being invested in mega caps as part of that, that note. Um, she's not ready to suggest that the leadership position of the mega caps is done and gone, but at least in the near term, avoid being invested in those names. As you still get reiteration today, UBS, buy Apple, Bernstein, reiterate, Alphabet, outperform. You're going to still get those calls every day. So I was kind of confused because when you read the note, it's like, yeah, don't own mega caps. But gosh, I mean, it's not just about Fang that are mega caps. I mean, there are a lot of companies that are mega cap stocks that are actually pretty attractive. And they're not necessarily in technology. Well, she's talking, I think, specifically about the... The Fang. technology stocks. Yeah, the, and the bank. I mean, but look, I mean, okay, IBM is a mega cap, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a pretty interesting story. It's been one of the best technology stories to own this year. There are plenty of others that are really very big. Maybe maybe Accenture is not as big mega cap, but they've got growth in, in the double digits and margin expansion and huge free cash flow. So I think there are a couple of examples that I could cite, a lot of examples I can cite. It's not just kind of paint it all with a broad brush. Look at valuations, free cash flow, balance sheets, management teams, the things that we talk about all the time. And when those stocks that you feel good about, their end markets and their market share, when those, when those stocks fall, that's your opportunity if you're a longer-term investor. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to just say don't own Megacap. I think that you want to be No, very, but very I mean, selective. there's a difference between an IBM at $130, $135 billion market cap versus an Apple at 2 or $3 trillion. Right, but I, mean, I, I still think $125 billion is a, is a pretty big co- uh, company that, and that's doing all the right things. I mean, right now, and it's also not in the crosshairs. Not, not a lot of people own it. Not a lot of people recommend it, except Jenny and I. Right, we, we, and, and Surat we, mentioned we and last, last quick, Johnson last Johnson point, before. Okay, That's please. 450 million. Right. Like, we're 460 now. Where does it where does it begin? Right. All right. Let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back. Stay with us because we've got highlights from CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit today. Do not miss what Jeffrey Gunlock of Double Line told me about his outlook for 23 and more. We're back in two minutes. Stocks at session lows. Dow's down about one percent. Nasdaq's down about one and three quarters percent. Uh, and oil's getting cream today, too. Back after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. 
We're back on the Halftime Report, CNBC's FA Summit currently underway. I spoke to Double Line's Jeffrey Gundlach about the markets, his outlook for 2023, and what he thinks will work next year. Let's listen to that. The question is, uh, what's 2023 going to bring? And uh, with all of the negative uh, market action this year, uh, bonds are down even more than the Dow Jones Industrial Average on investment-grade bonds. And stocks, of course, although they've done better lately, like all risk assets, are still down, uh, particularly on the NASDAQ, quite a lot. I, I kind of feel like January uh, could start out, as it often does, with, uh, w- with buying. So I, th- I think that it's possible that we see reallocation as we uh, enter uh, 2023, which could, I I believe we're gonna start out with good returns for both stocks and bonds in in January, at least at at the beginning of the year, as we get kind of reversal of some of the selling that happened to harvest tax losses. All right, now remember, Jim, he told me, I think it was at the Schwab event, that one of the, the key risks going into the end of the year was elevated tax loss selling. Maybe you get some reversal of that, but what about this idea? You could get, you know, good beginning of the year for both bonds and stocks? I, I, you know, I think the beginning of next year, Scott, is going to be like most of this year, which has a high degree of uncertainty. And I know you don't want to hear that when you're listening to somebody like me. You want certainty, but you just can't right now because there are too many unknowns. What's going on with the Fed? What's going on with inflation? As Surratt said earlier, what's going on with earnings? The good news, though, in the first couple of months, in the first six weeks, you're going to have a lot of resolution to that. What am I talking about? Obviously, you're going to get fourth quarter earnings. You're going to get another Fed meeting. You're going to get another round of inflation meetings. I can paint the scenario, which I've painted for quite some time, that inflation is coming down more rapidly than people expect, and that the hit to earnings, Surat, that you brought up, will be short-lived, that the second half of next year is going to look wholly different from the first half of this year. Unfortunately, my degree of confidence in that has to be low right now. I need data to come in, starting with this month's inflation reports, but I need data to really pound the table. I think everybody needs data. What would you do if I told you, you know, to Jim's point, and also when I spoke with Liz Ann Saunders of Schwab yesterday in overtime, the idea that the first half of next year is going to be cloudy, could get rainy, stormy, whatever, but the sun's going to come out uh, more or less in the second half of the year. How, so, how, would, that, how would your view of the market or in, in investing today be impacted by that, if you believe that that's to be true? If I believe that to be true, and I actually do believe it to be true, because one of the things that you know from all of us that we're not timers, right? So, but with the beauty of this is if that happens, and to Jim's point, if earnings actually trough in the first or second quarter, the market will look through that with a couple of things. One is if earnings are troughing, they're gonna, they're gonna, stocks will rise before that happens. Secondly, if there is more certainty as to what Jenny was saying about interest rates, when we get certainty about the uncertainty, the market actually likes that. Even if it's 5% or 5.5% terminal, you can actually work with that. So I think you will see the cloudy skies kind of come back, go away, and you'll see some sunshine. And certain stocks, I think the cyclical, some of the others will start rising a lot faster than people expect, especially ones that are beaten down right now. The other uh, idea is if you do think that the first half of the year is going to be a little murky, you're probably going to still have some activity in treasuries, at least advisors like you and money managers like you recommending them. So I asked Jeffrey Gundlach, short end of the curve, long end of the curve. What's better? Here's what he said. I think it's in the long end uh, because I, I just I just think even though the late rates are lower on the long end, it's historically the case. People people always say, why would I buy a thirty year, a ten year treasury, say at three and a half, when I can buy 
you know, a year bill at 460 or whatever it is. And, and, the, and the reason is that it's the bond market's anticipating recession. So you're going to want capital gains out of bonds, and it allows you to own risky assets. So we're obviously in volatile times, and there's a lot of economic uncertainty. So it's, there's opportunities. I mean, stocks are cheaper than they were to start this year. Bonds are cheaper than they were to start this year. But with these economic conditions, I think you want long treasuries as part of your portfolio allocation so that you can offset the risk that you're taking uh, in, in, in cheaper stocks and some cheaper bonds than we started the year with. Okay, so hedge some of your risk. What do you think? Well, I've actually been buying bonds for some of my clients. We have a few clients where we, where we invest in fixed income too, and I've been taking a very different approach. I've bought two-year United Rentals and Las Vegas Sands bonds at like six plus percent yield. It's insane. I bought Cisco bonds with an almost, maybe they were about three-year Cisco bonds with almost a 5% yield. So I look at that and I don't care about the capital gain. I'm holding these until maturity. So I'm looking at these and saying, these are companies that I know from the equity investment side. Barring Armageddon, they're not going bankrupt in two, three, four years. And if I can stick 6% in my pocket going into this uncertain time, fantastic. There is an alternative. That's yes. what you're saying, Terra. right? Terra. It's right? a new acronym. Yeah. Right. There are reasonable alternatives. So, Terra. Right. And we haven't, had that in, we haven't but, had that in 10 years. Yeah. I know. It's so awesome. So, so to your point, we've been buying bonds two to five years out as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if they're investment grade or not because I, we do the work on them. Right. And as long as I'm going to get my money back, if I'm getting five to six percent buying bonds like GM, buying some of the others, like the ones you mentioned, you know, even some of the financials, I'm getting that five to six percent for two to five years out. And for our clients, what that is securing income and they'll get their capital back. Now, that does I don't care what's going on in the seven to 10 year or longer, because if rates do go down, then I'm not really that concerned because I don't want to lock in. But you're talking about corporates uh, versus government. Yes. Bonds. Yeah, we're talking about corporates. And I asked so, him. I mean, I asked him the question because I, I can't tell you, you all watch the show. I've heard a number of times people come on and suggest Oh, I love the two-year here yeah. in terms of the Treasury, right? It's become one of the most favored yes. trades, I think, which is why I asked him, you know, is it really the, the best place to be or is the longer end I, I the think, better place to be? Scott, I think he's talking to a, a different end user here. Um, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, I think he works in institutional land. And what he said makes sense. But in the world that we all inhabit yeah. of individual clients, the reason they want bonds is stability. Yes, the income matters, but stability. If you're going long on the curve, you're increasing your exposure to interest rate volatility. I'm not going to make an interest rate call, okay? Uh, three right. generations of Labenthal's have learned not to right. do that, okay? <laughs> Decades. However, I'll tell you, I don't think interest rate volatility is going away, and you're going to feel it a lot more at the long end. It's not why our clients want to be involved. Well, you know, you said stability, and yeah. that's so, so perfect, because mm -hmm. people forgot you could actually lose money in, in bonds. <laughs> right. Yeah. right? We know that there's volatility well, in equities that we know. There are but, still people who bought bonds two years ago, right. 20 years out, that have lost quite a bit right. and, and now don't know what to do with preferreds and they don't know what to do with their 20-year bonds. And so bonds. that speaks to your all three of your strategies right. in terms of what the, you're buying. The other thing that I just want to add is when you buy these bonds, make sure you ladder them. You don't yeah. just do point in time, I'm going to buy all these for two or three years or buy all in 10 years, because we just don't know, to your point, nobody... I don't know when interest rates are going to be in three years. So I'll do two, three, four, five, maybe do a five-year ladder, and then when they come off, I get to buy. So the bonds I bought three years ago today are coming off, and I get a much better higher rate. Maybe in three years I get lower rates, but then at least I have some that have higher rates. But you know what's funny about that? Way back, maybe 10-plus years ago, I would also ladder when I was doing bond portfolios, and it would go out eight, nine years. Right. And so right now, you see, and this goes to your point, Scott, about the two-year being where it's at, right? So, so I don't really care about the 
actual two-year treasury. I care about what it says for everything that I'm buying around it. The and o- so within that, you, yeah. like, I think we're keeping our ladder shorter. Right. To your point about stability. Yeah, I'm not going actual, out more than five years. Yeah, I mean, me neither. Yeah. Which is which is weird. I mean, right. I haven't even been buying bonds for right. years, and now I think it's a really, really amazing opportun- opportunity. Back over here. Hi, Sorry. everybody. <laughs> we got to take a break. Right. Thanks for us play. Thank you. Uh, when we come back, or, uh, a reminder, by the way, CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit is happening right now. Surat and Jenny are both speaking later. Uh, QR code right there. Register. Great conversations. That's just a, a taste right there of who you're going to hear from uh, throughout this day. Coming up. A double upgrade for one big bank stock. We do have ownership on the desk. We'll debate that in our call of the day. It's coming up next. PepsiCo announcing this week it aims to double the amount of reusable packaging it sells from 10 to 20% of beverage servings by 2030. The increased reuse is part of the company's plan to reduce virgin plastic consumption by 50% by 2030 and to become net zero by 2040. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Christina Partsnevelis. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is expected to make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. The panel's chairman, Representative Benny Thompson, saying the committee has not narrowed down the set of individuals who may be referred. The committee is expected to meet again later today. Boeing's final 747 is set to roll out of the company's factory near Seattle after a more than 50-year production run. The decision comes as airlines are pushing for more fuel-efficient planes that are cheaper to operate. Boeing will now transition to manufacturing two-engine wide-body jetliners. And more than 70% of voters in a recent poll want President Biden to release the final batch of JFK assassination records next week. The documents that could shed light on ties between Lee Harvey Oswald and the CIA are scheduled to be released on the 15th, but could be delayed further. Scott, back over to you. Uh, Christina, thank you. Christina Partsinevelos. J.P. Morgan today got double upgraded to overweight at Morgan Stanley. They also raised the price target to $153 from $126. Our call of the day, Surat, you own it. Nice double upgrade for JPM. I do. I mean, this thing has not performed well. But if you look at JP Morgan's businesses, I mean, you've got net interest uh, margin improving. If you look at kind of where asset management, M&A activity, capital markets, all troughing. So I think this is a really good call. It's a solid balance sheet. Jamie was on the show uh, earlier this, uh, this morning talking about how strong the balance sheets and the capital are for all these companies. They're trading at, you know, 10, 11 times earnings with 3 4% dividend yields. So, so they are strong companies going into kind of a weaker period. You got the recession overhang, though, right? That's the issue. That's holding the stocks back. And that's why you got a 30% discount to the S&P. So you're already discounting that based on kind of where the stock is. Let me ask you this. If you didn't own the stock today, would you buy it? I do. I buy it for new clients, and I make sure I have a 2% position in it. Okay. You own it, too. Farmer Jim? 
I like the financials, Scott. You know that. Back up uh, the tractor. <laughs> back up the tractor. Um, look, I, I like the financials. I also have an investment belief that if you're going to be in any sector, you have to own the best in that sector. J.P. Morgan, we can make an argument. Somebody may disagree, but I do believe it's the creme de la creme in the sector. So I own some more kind of flyer names in the sector, like a Citigroup, but I'm not going to own Citigroup unless I own J.P. Morgan. It's just an investment style. You have to own the creme de la creme in an industry that you want to be in. I'm not going to debate, uh, obviously, what you think the creme to the creme is. I mean, I'm just. I'll say one more thing, if I may. I'm sorry to cut you off because I feel like that was that was a little, you know, it was a little sugary. Okay. I mean, the valuation here is. <laughs> I mean, kinda, it's your stock, not mine. <laughs> I, thank you for giving me a little more runway here or a rope to hang myself. I don't know. Um, look, ten times earnings, three percent dividend yield, one and a half times book value. To Surratt's point, yeah, this is a good price to buy it. I think you just want to be careful because Bank of America just lowered guidance today well, for net interest income. Mm-hmm. And that's going to ha- have an impact across the group. It's not a Bank of America-specific issue. The, issue, the thing about uh, J.P. Morgan is it's always traded at a premium. It's trading at 1.5 times book. And if I can get Wells Fargo, that's at 1.2 times book. And it's a turnaround story. And, yeah, they're going to have one. to lower I, numbers, I, too. I, I, I got you. I, but I just, I, I'd be very careful about buying banks right at this moment in time. We have to get through pre-season, right? Pre-earning season. It's like you own them. If, if you own them, don't sell them, but don't go buy them is I'm your message, trim. right? I, oh, you I'm might nervous. You might trim. Hang on two seconds. I'm you a, might you might trim your the stock I'm, you have. I'm, yes, because I'm Bank of America, Morgan yeah. Stanley, Wells Fargo. I'm way overweight, so I can take a little off, have a little cash, and then if they weaken further, I'll buy them back. Okay, to be continued with that. It sounds like Jenny so, Quick. So I'm really nervous. I ca- I was starting to look at Truist, and I called a friend who spent his career as a financial services analyst, and I said, should I get into this? And he said, Jen, hold off, and I'll tell you why. He said, none of these banks have started increasing their deposit rates yet, right. and when they do, that's really going to start to cut into the net interest margins. Interestingly, I had a client call and he said, I don't get it. Why am I getting two and a half percent on my Schwab and Fidelity money markets, but my Wells Fargo account isn't paying me that. And so the Goldman Sachs conference is going on right now. I'm super jealous of my analyst. He's there. I can't be there because I love you guys. Um, And so what I said to him is listen for who's going to finally start to fold and increase their deposit rates. Because once they do, they're all going to go down like dominoes. And that's going to take a bite out of things. So to me, you've got that as a major source of uncertainty. And I think interest rates, until we know what they're going to be, continue to be a source of uncertainty. So for me, I'm nervous about this space, even though, in fairness to both of you, the share prices have digested and anticipated a lot of that. But I think there's some nastiness that could come. And on your balance sheet comments, you know I always worry about what's off balance sheet for the big guys. All right. Straight ahead, it is one of the largest foreign investments in U.S. history. What it means for the semis and how the committee thinks you should play that space right now. We're back right here on The Half in two minutes. We are back. The future of chip manufacturing in this country taking center stage today. President Biden touring a new Taiwan semiconductor facility in Arizona. That visit coming as the company announces an even bigger investment in that state. Our Christina Partsinevelos here with what some are calling a game changer for our technology industry. I think that's the only way you can can describe it. Well, especially because they're tripling their initial investment. Now it's $40 billion on not one, but two fabs. The other piece of news, too, is that these fabs will create even more advanced nodes. So the first one will create four nanometers. The second one will eventually create three nanometer nodes by 2026. Sounds great. 
if this all goes on schedule, uh, they are making some promises about uh, roughly 50,000 wafers per month. Again, sounds like a big number, but when you compare that to Taiwan, it's, mm. it really doesn't even compare. So it's a start. And then you have to think, too, there's, it's, this is good. We need competition. We need all of this to come on American soil. Intel, too, they are working on their four nanometer uh, nodes. They claim that they will be producing an even more advanced chip in 2023. Samsung, the same situation. So if that's the case, you've got three large manufacturers here in the United States, which could potentially lower the price because we just saw in the latest quarter, TSMC increase their prices, increase their margins. So this is all a, a possibly a benefit for uh, future electronics if everything goes on yeah. as planned. I'm glad you put it into perspective, too, because uh, did you hear Stacey Raskin, right, top chip analyst in the, in the prior hour, was like, yes, it's a, it's a good start. But as an overall percentage of, of Taiwan's production, it's minuscule. And it's not even the most advanced in the world. Taiwan is going to continue to do that in Taiwan, not necessarily in the United States. Uh, I, I should even say it. I was on a call with the White House yesterday, and they said that they were going to fulfill all the advanced node demands in the United States by 2026. But then they retracted that statement because they realized that's a bold statement to make to, to, to fulfill that. And so it, it is at least putting the United States on the, on the platform. It's, there's a lot of room to go, especially when you talk about hiring the staff. Some are basing investment decisions on this, like this gentleman right over here, straight across from me. Darn He's been right. like your satellite Darn correspondent right. on chip fab. Oh, you haven't seen plants here. Oh, in, I have, in, but in uh, the US. on TSMC, haven't seen those fight about this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think everything, right? This whole idea yeah, of onshoring <laughs> production of well. So, products. So if, if I may, I mean, yes, I think this is in the long term bullish for America, bullish for the semiconductors. But in the short term, like the next one to two years, I think this is bullish on the value stocks that many of us at this table are enthusiastic about. You need to clear land, right? You need Caterpillar and Deer to clear land. You need steel. steel. You need Cleveland Cliffs and yeah. other uh, manufacturers to get that steel over. You need concrete. You need energy. Oh, by the way, if you're going to have a bunch of bulldozers out there, you need financing. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup. Um, so I'm very you know what else you need? You need there to not be a recession. Yeah. That's what you need. So this is a good ah, point, like but I'm going to debate, and it's debatable. Because maybe, Scott, maybe they built through a recession yeah. because they're building these plants with at least a 10-year time horizon. Mm -hmm. And they're I, getting subsidies from the government, too. They're so they're getting handouts. But <laughs> you didn't even mention water. Think of the amount of water yeah. that's going to go in there. But your time frame seems to be very short. What about just in the medium term with all the equipment makers? Even before they get the production of the chips yes. out, you have, uh, you have LAM, applied materials, KLA, all benefiting in the, let's say, you know, two-year time frame from here. Somebody it's, is screaming at their television right now that it's all inflation. Right. Somebody's I got you. We hear you. We hear you. <laughs> OK. But in the long run, this is productivity enhancing. you got to get through this short term inflation. By the way, inflation's coming down. Let's relax a little bit about inflation. OK. It's a it, thank you. It's a public service announcement. No. It's a it's a big deal appearance today. Right. I mean, the, the president's got Tim Cook is going to be there. Yes. Jensen Wong and video, of course, is going to be there. I think he's going to make some remarks, too. He will. I, Sanjay Marotra yes. is going to be there from Micron. And we're going to see you in overtime when this is all going down. Yeah, so because I'll be. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not there here, but uh, yeah, we're going to be covering it. And right. there, Apple is a customer, too, of the Arizona plant. So that's uh, important to note as well. All right. Good stuff. Uh, thank you. Thank that's you. Christina Partsinevelos. You see her later in overtime. All right. Surat, you got you to go, right? You got to yep. do the FA Summit. I do. All right. You you go. Uh, I'm really staying. We're back. Santoli's going to join us next. Do you want me to do your final for you? Sure. <laughs> Grade my trade. Send us your latest stock move, and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com 
or tweet us. Hashtag GradeMyTrade. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, is at the Stock Exchange joining us now for his midday word. So I'm thinking about Backish today of Paramount, Moynihan of Bank of America, as Stephanie Link was just talking about, you know, cautious in the guidance, if not taking it down. And then I've got the Atlanta GDP up to 3.8. Yeah. And that kind of uh, captures a little bit of the in-between fix that the market is in, where there's this anticipation that, you know, companies are going to have other shoes to drop and and you're going to have to maybe wait until the January earnings reporting season to get a full picture of exactly what they're dealing with on the margin side. At the same time, current activity in labor, uh, in services and just the overall GDP level is not allowing the Fed to be anything less than vigilant, right? So I think that's, that's, that's the shape of the yield curve right there, which is Fed's got more to do, but we think either the hard way or the easy way, inflation is going to be taken care of. And, you know, there are days when it seems like the hard way, which means some kind of a downturn, and others when it doesn't. I found it fascinating. So many strategists are projecting almost no net movement or maybe slightly negative for the overall mm-hmm. S&P 500 next year, but it's always across a valley. It's always down first, then up to flat. And I think that's probably better than the alternative where everyone is excited about immediate upside, but we'll have to see how it plays. I was going to bring up the cost in note to you uh, as well, yeah. the, you know, flattened in terms of the expectations, no earnings growth, zero, no equity yeah. growth, zero to your point. Exactly. Hey, Morgan Stanley's there, Goldman Sachs is there, I think UBS is there. It just makes a lot of sense to feel as if that there's unfinished business in terms of lagged effects of what the Fed has already done. Is is there a contrarian trade in there? There's a certain appeal in saying 2022 as a calendar year was this big reset, revaluation, you know, pent-up Fed tightening year, and maybe we got a lot of it done. Nobody seems to want to make that bet going into next year, that it's a cleaner picture uh, going ahead. Yeah, I'll see you in a few hours. That's Mike Santoli for his midday word, his last word, of course, coming in overtime. Final trades right here on The Half next. All right, join me in overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern today. Joe Terranova's there. We tapped out on this idea of a rally between now and the end of the year. BTIG's Jonathan Krinsky is going to tell us, going to look at the charts, tell you what they're telling him. We got Toll Brother earnings, and of course, the president is touring that TSMC uh, factory out in uh, Arizona. Tim Cook's there, Jensen Wong's there, Sanjay Mahotra's there. Uh, it's a big event, and we'll uh, cover that for you as well. I'll see all of you then. Let's do final trade. Jen Harrington, what do you got? Sure. Enterprise products. In this uncertain time, Enterprise products has paid and raised a dividend for 24 straight years. They have 50,000 miles of pipeline, 260 million barrels of storage. You've got a 7.8% yield, trades at 10 times earnings. Okay. Thank you. Stephanie Link. Oh, Estee Lauder. I thought you were going to go that way. Uh, <laughs> Estee Lauder. <laughs> it actually got an upgrade today. I like keeping you on your toes. You definitely did there. <laughs> um, Estee Lauder got an upgrade today. I wish I actually did. Agreed. So did GE, by the way. So I wanted to GE. get to that with you, too. I know. No, no love for the GE Estee Lauder <laughs> thing here. Um, quality products, great margin profile. But the real reason you want to own this now, if you think China is going to reopen, which does look like they are, they have 34% of their revenues tied to that region. Farmer Jim. Boeing, I think the stock is done being a punching bag. Up 40% in two months, but today's pullback gives you an opportunity. Bold statement. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, all of you. I'll see you in overtime. The Exchange with Kelly begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.